Would you please open your Bibles and find your way to the book of Ephesians. The Bible, of course, is a book, but it is made up of 66 different books. Two Testaments, largely speaking, of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, the Old and the New, as is often said. So you're going to be looking in the New Testament section of the Bible, and you're going to find your way to the book of Ephesians, which is sandwiched in a section of the New Testament that has a bunch of letters. So this is, uh, we call it a book, the book of Ephesians, but it is technically a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Ephesus, and hence it has the name Ephesians. It dates around 61 to 62 AD. The Apostle Paul wrote this while he was in prison in Rome. He was in prison for his faith. He was a man who stood up for the right thing. He was a man who stood up living his faith and sharing his faith with people, and that, that landed him in jail. So this is a letter that is written from a man who is in jail. Incidentally, among the letters of Paul, we have Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. The, those four together are prison epistles, prison letters. In our contemporary context, we think of the great uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and his, uh, his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. If you haven't read it, uh, um, it, you need to read it. You, you must read Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Uh, and, and there you see, uh, you know, another pastor in a different generation, King, who's in jail, and his heart, his heart is heavy for the people of God and, and, and sin and dysfunction in the culture uh, that is infecting the people of God. And so, too, the Apostle Paul, like King, he's locked up, but he, he's, he's not bitter about it. He's thinking about God. He's thinking about God's people. He's thinking about, you know, the church. And so he writes this letter to the Ephesians. Now, just hang on there. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to get into Ephesians this morning. Last week was Resurrection Sunday. We, 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 we celebrated Easter. Uh, what, what happens after Easter, after Jesus is risen from the dead? He goes and he gathers his disciples together. And he has to clarify some things. There was some, some confusion with regard to their messianic expectations. Uh, they, they thought the Messiah was going to usher in the kingdom. So when you come to the opening of the book of Acts, uh, another book in the New Testament, which gives us the history of the church, you see Jesus with his disciples after Easter, and they're asking questions about when are you going to start the kingdom of God? And he tells them that there's a time, an epoch, an age, when that is going to happen, that the Father has fixed but that they have a mission that's different. And he gives them what is known as the Great Commission. And you can read about that in the opening of the book of Acts, and you can read about that in the closing of the four gospel accounts, which overlap with the book of Acts. After Easter, Jesus comes to his disciples. He, he, he teaches them the word. He loves on them. He clarifies things for them. He forgives them, because they were all a bunch of busters who ran and, you know, it was kind of sad and pathetic. Uh, so he, he goes and he goes, man, I forgive you guys. I love you guys. Let's hang out. Let's teach the word. And, and at, at 40 days into this, he, he, he corrals them together. They're still asking questions. When, when's the kingdom going to start popping off? And he goes, that's going to pop off later. But check this out. I have something for you to do now. There's a new age that has come. It's called the age of the church. And so Jesus gives what we call the Great Commission to the church, and he tells them to go and make disciples. In the book of Acts, he says, go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth with this message, and you go and teach this and, and, and share this. 
You know, when you love someone, you, want, you, can't, you can't help but to talk about them. When, when you love something, you go to a new restaurant or whatever, and you're like, man, the food there is amazing. You just end up sharing it with people. They, they love Christ, and Christ loves them, and so he gives them the great commission to go and to share that message with the entire world. Let me give you, let me, let me put it in front of you here, the great commission as it is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew in the 28th chapter. Jesus came and he spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you and lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. So this is the great commission. We could go to John, we could go to Mark, we could go to Acts, we could go to Luke, and we see it there as well. But succinctly stated, here Matthew gives it to you, Jesus gathers the church, the kingdom's going to be popping off later, but before that happens, I got something for you guys to do. I need you to go into the world. Uh, the term that is used here when he talks about uh, going to the ends of the earth, he talks about going to all the nations. The term here for nations is the term ethnos, which is where we get our term ethnicity. So, so it's not just geography when you think about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. He wants them to go geographically to disperse out, but specifically the God that we worship is a God who cares to see a multi-ethnicity in his people. And you look around the room and you see that reflected in our congregation. And I'm thankful to God for that and long to see more of that. He says, you go and reach all ethnos, all peoples. Now, when we think about reaching people groups and we think about different ethnic groups of, of people, uh, missiologists today note that of approximately 8 billion people on planet Earth, there are 3.2 billion who are considered to belong to unreached people groups. Those are groups that haven't heard the gospel yet. More than 7,000 people groups uh, uh, within this are, are classified as, as unreached. So, you, so, so that's more than 40% of the total population of the earth is unreached. So this is important because as we think about going into the, the world with this, we, that's not just Los Angeles. That's not just California. That's not just, you know, our nation. And it's not just the world. It's reaching these ethnic groups of people that have yet to hear with him. If we just focus on our mission field here in Los Angeles, then over 2 billion people will continue to be born to live and to die without ever hearing about Jesus and his love. We need to see the world and the people groups of the world as our mission field that God longs to share his, his love with. We, we need to go. And what do we do when we go? Well, look at the text in front of you here. This is introduction to get us into Ephesians so I can show you how Paul is living out the Great Commission and it's oozing off of his pen in this prison epistle of Ephesians. What do we need to do when we go? What does it say in Matthew 28? Now, the single imperative in, in, in the text, the imperative in the original text that is in front of you, translated into English, the single imperative in the text is make disciples. Mathe to sate, make disciples. That's the imperative or, or the command. Mathe to sate. And there are three participles that are attached to this one imperative. The participles, the participles are going, baptizing, and teaching. 
So there's one command, make disciples, and there's these three participles, going, baptizing, teaching. Mathe tu sate, that's the command, make disciples. Go, okay, baptize, okay, teach. Those are the participles. Now, now this is significant for us because uh, as a result of seeing the one command, some will translate the text as, while you are going, make disciples, baptizing and teaching them which is very significant because it means, hey, we're all a going people, so wherever we go, we need to do this. But in addition to this, given the nature of the ethnos, if you just go where you are, you're never going to reach people who aren't like you. So you've got to go out of your comfort zone. And as a community, as churches, we need to send people out into the world. I'm so thankful. Uh, the last three years have been crazy uh, with pandemics and and, and politics and all the rest, but in the midst, and, and shutdowns, in the midst of that, we actually sent a family out from our church who is headed into the unreached people group, and I'm, I'm excited to report, incidentally, that they are going to be coming back after a few years gone to share with us this summer, and we're working on, on dates uh, now. I mean, their lives are literally on the line for this, I can't say their names because of protection and whatnot, but those of you who are part of the church, you know who I'm talking about. We've been given this mission. We have to fulfill this mission to go into the world and reach all people. You know the Coca-Cola company? It's headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. It's, of course, best known for its flagship product, Coca-Cola, which uh, I'm particularly a fan of the Diet Cola. It's a delicious soda. And save me, save me your that's bad for you talks after the sermon. You know that's bad for you. Your body is a temple. Your body is a temple. Uh, yeah, I know, I know. There's all sorts of, there's all sorts of, anyway, Diet Coke. There's all sorts of other things I've put in my temple over the years. But what fascinates me about Coca-Cola is they got started in 1892. Within 100 years' time, they were in 200 countries or territories. Today, they serve 2 billion Cokes a day. And I'm bringing this up because Coca-Cola has went into the world better than the church of Jesus Christ in like a tenth of the time. We've been around 2,000 years. They, they've been around, you know, 100 or so. Look, look, 91% of the world's population has heard of Coke. 74% has seen Coke. 51% have tasted Coke. 10% of the world's population has heard the gospel. And so that means we have work to do, church. If you can't say amen, you've got to say ouch, right? We've got work to do. It's a wake-up call for us that, that who's going to be the next we send into the harvest? And what about the harvest that we have around us in the city of Los Angeles? We have work to do. We have work to do. Now that said, it's God's work, though. It's not contingent on us. It, God's not in heaven clamoring, oh my goodness, what am I going to do to compete with Coca-Cola? He's not clamoring. He's in full control. This is his work. Look at this verse. I'll put it above the Great Commission, Revelation 5, 9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book, to break its seals. You were slain and purchased for God with your blood, speaking of Jesus, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus has purchased his people from 
all of these ethnic groups and nations and geography and the rest. He's done it already. He's accomplished it. He was victorious in this. And he's inviting his people to go and make disciples. You get to partner with, with me in this. I, I, you know, there's a place in the gospel accounts where the disciples are with Jesus and he tells them, he goes, hey, you guys, like, it's actually better that I go. It's better that I go. Speaking of his ascension into heaven, he says, because I'm going to send another, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and, and it's going to be sweet, you guys. And I don't know about you, but I read that and I go, man, I, I, th I think I'd want to kick it with Jesus. I think that would be better. But Jesus in his own mouth says, no, what, what's going to happen in between my ascension into heaven and my coming back, what's going to happen in between that church age with the Spirit, it's going to be better. I've purchased a people in the world for myself, and I'm sending you with the power of the Spirit to go and to reach that people. Now, this morning, I want to take you into the book of Ephesians as a survey of Ephesians to show you how that comes to life in the Apostle Paul while he's sitting in the jail cell dropping bars on, on the believers in Ephesus. I, I just popped in my head there. I think of like Tupac and rappers in jail who make their phone call and they drop some bars and then it ends up on a beat. You're like, how are these guys getting songs out in jail? Because they're, they're in jail and that's what they're thinking about. They're thinking about what they love. And Paul's thinking about who he loves, Jesus. And he's thinking about this commission that's, that's been given to them. And this commission has three participles. Remember, going, baptizing, and teaching. And in today's message, I want to focus on the baptizing part. So I have titled that message, Baptized Believers. And as we get into the book of Ephesians, we're going to see how Paul brings up baptism. And we're going to look at baptism in the order in which he presents it. Now, by, by way of understanding here... The word baptize comes from the word baptizo. Baptizo simply means to immerse something, to plunge something, to dunk something, to submerge something, to, to press it down under the water. That's what baptizo means. So when we read accounts, like this morning in our public reading of Scripture, we read from Matthew chapter 3. And in Matthew chapter 3, John the baptizer, the Baptist is running around dunking people in water or whatever. And in, in the account, even... When, when Jesus is baptized, we read in Matthew chapter 3 that he came up out of the water. Because baptizo means to go under the water. So when you're done with that, you come up out of the water. It's like a free willy. You, you come up out of the water. Lost some of you on that one. But you come up out of the water because you went under the water. Baptizo is going under water. I'll say more about the significance of why Jesus was getting baptized later in the message. But, but for now, just I want... I want us to understand, baptizo is going underwater. Why are you going underwater? What's that, what's that all about? Well, it's a ritual. It's a ceremony. It signifies something. Uh, all, all cultures, all groups have different ceremonies and rituals that you go through. Uh, you know, you join a sorority and they haze you and do weird stuff to you or whatever, or you, whatever, you join a different group and there's, there's rituals to them that you go through as a, as a part of it, right? So this is a ritual that has been a part of, of this holy book. It goes back to the days, the days of old in the Hebrew Bible all the way into the days of the new. Uh, for Jewish people, they, they didn't speak Greek. Well, lots of Jewish people did speak Greek, but before the days of the Greeks, they wouldn't have had that word, baptizo. They had a word, mikvah. 
A mikvah, in the plural mikvahot, are these ceremonial pools of water that you would go into as a part of a ritual. And that ritual is a ceremony where you're acknowledging, I'm not clean. And this water cleanses like my body. It gets the it gets the funk off the body. It washes the dirt off the body. And that is a symbol of what God does to us by faith when we run to him. He washes us. It's a powerful existential symbol when you think about it. Because when we sin, when we do stuff that we're not supposed to do, what do you feel? You feel dirty. You feel guilty. Uh, I, uh, I have the sad, unfortunate experience of living many years of my, most of my teenage years in sin and rebellion. And I, I remember even in those years just doing stuff that I don't even care to bring up uh, this morning. I got kids in the room who are like, Dad, Dad, tell me more. No, 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 I don't want you to know about this stuff. And uh, one of the things I, I used to do often was I, I would just sit in the shower like trying to shake the feeling after doing something, and it doesn't go away. Because water doesn't wash that dirt and sin that's inside of you. Now, now, water can serve as a picture of God doing that washing in you. And so baptizo, or mikvah, is an outward symbol of an inward reality of God washing you. Incidentally, it also then entails that when I'm going into the baptism waters, I'm, I'm not only acknowledging that I need you, God, to wash me, I'm also confessing my sin. I'm saying I'm dirty. I'm saying I, I, I was wrong. Which is more than saying I'm sorry. In our culture, a lot of times you oh, I'm sorry. You took it that way, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. You didn't understand what I was really saying. No, no. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. You alone can forgive me. And so mikvah meant to do that in the days of old. So when John the baptizer is out in the Jordan and he's baptizing people, people aren't like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? We've never seen anything like this. Everyone knows about the mikvah. Oh, they know about ceremonial washings. Everyone gets this. And we all, it's, it's cross-cultural. You do something that's wrong, you feel dirty, and you go, oh my gosh, I, I want that. You cry out to God. God forgives you. He's doing something inward in you. And you go, I want to picture what he's doing inside of me with something external I know, I'll, I'll do the mikvah, oh, I'll do the baptizo thing. And so in Matthew 28, what we saw then is Jesus saying, you need to go and make disciples, but those disciples need to come under submission to me. They, they have to learn from me. We're making disciples, mathetes, learners, apprentices of Jesus. And so baptism is an acknowledgement that you alone can forgive me, that you alone have forgiven me, and that I'm going to obey you and submit to you because that imperative, that command to be baptized, by undergoing it, I'm saying, I, I, I will obey you. And so the disciples, as they were given this commission in the book of Acts, Acts 1 and the other gospel accounts, I showed you Matthew 28, Jesus ascends into heaven, and the first thing that happens, the Spirit falls, and then the first thing that happens they start preaching this message. And so Peter gets up in Acts chapter 2, and he preaches this message about Jesus, about, about sin, about forgiveness, about redemption, and, and he preaches his little heart out, and he concludes it by saying, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent, turn from your sin, believe this, and, and be baptized. Now, incidentally, when he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, 
Many people, uh, unfortunately, a lot of uh, folks will uh, just try and teach the Bible, but they don't have access to the original languages. They'll say, well, well, that means that unless you are baptized, you're not saved. Because he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So if you want to be forgiven of your sins, you have to be baptized, and then God will forgive you. And I say, no, sir, that's not how we have to read that in the Greek. Further, that presents all sorts of theological problems which today's message will tackle. You don't have to do anything for God to save you. The message of Christianity isn't do, 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 do. The message of Christianity is done. It's done. It's paid in full. He paid everything for you. Faith itself, repentance itself, is a gift that he gives to you. Baptism, for the forgiveness of your sins, here's how this works in the Greek. The preposition for comes from this word ace. And use ace, not like for in order to get for, but for because of for. Follow me. Uh, my, my son is in the front row with the, with the sweet red fro. If I said, he, as he often does, he gets a headache. And I say, Elijah, take this Advil for your headache. If he said, Dad, I don't want to get a headache. I go, no, no, take this Advil for your headache. He would understand that I'm saying, take this Advil because you have a headache. Likewise, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That is to say, repent and be baptized because you have had your sins forgiven by God. These are responses that we make freely because of what God has done. They are not things that we have to do in order to get God to like us. God is not petty. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. God scratches our backs while we're kicking and screaming and spitting on him. He is a God who responds to the unrequited love of creation by loving us and giving himself for us. And so then in the book of Acts, we, you, you, you see from the very start, the Spirit falls and they preach, repent, be baptized, because he's forgiving your sins. And you follow through the book of Acts and you see him doing that. Judea, Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. And that message moves from, from first century, from these apostles, all the way into the world and finds its way in this little corner of West Los Angeles 2,000 years later. We're still talking about it. And you can't stop the shining because God is on the throne and he's got people that he has paid for and he wants us to go get them. You know what redemption means? We talk about being redeemed. Redemption is a term that is used in the ancient world for, for buying slaves out of the slave market and liberating them. You have been bought. You have been purchased. You have been liberated. So to redeem, uh, remember Chuck E. Cheese? Uh, there was one on La Tijera, now it's a shoe place. And you go and you play little games and you get the little red tickets and they say redeem on them. And then you take those red tickets and you go to that little booth with those, those cheap plastic toys that are like a quarter, and you probably spent like $10 to get that yo-yo that is like 25 cents. But anyway, you take those little tickets that say redeem, and what do you do with that? You redeem that little yo-yo out of there, and it belongs to you. God has redeemed a people for himself, and he has sent us like children out with the tickets, and the tickets are the preaching of the gospel, and so we go and we proclaim that, and then he, just, he saves people. So Paul, as he talks about baptism, as he writes this letter, he, he starts not by talking about baptism, but by, by talking about God, the sovereign. Look on your outline at that first point, sovereign. Look at the text of Ephesians and see how he starts. 
It's like, I want to talk to you guys about baptism, but I got some more important stuff to cover first. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, Christ Jesus, by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God of our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before, oh wow, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to the adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, in him, we have redemption. That's that word I was talking about. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Now hang on there for a second. He's, he's said a lot. Verses 3 through 14, incidentally, are actually one long sentence. So all you English majors suck on that, <laughs> right? You say, that's a long sentence, and uh, you take it up with God. That's inspired by the Spirit. It's a long sentence from verse 3 through verse 14. It's a long sentence. And it's a long sentence, and you can't, you can't cut him off because he's, just pray, he's bubbling up with praise and blessing to God as he's reflecting on how sovereign God's rule is over creation, which is displayed so wonderfully in the work of salvation in Christ. Notice who Paul places Jesus to in the third verse. He places Jesus next to the Father as both Lord and Christ. This fits with the Trinitarian theology of the New Testament, that there's one God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. We're not making this up. That's who He is. That's who He's revealed Himself as. There, here you have Jesus. Here you have the Father. They are, they are Lord. We see Christ as the divine agent in redeeming sinners which was and is an eternal plan in the mind of an eternal God before the very foundation of the world. That's sovereignty, I'll tell you what. You know, the word sovereignty comes from a Latin word, superanus. Super, meaning over, above, super. Uh, my kids and I somehow got into this YouTube channel of this guy. He's somewhere in, in Eastern Europe or wherever, but it's a food channel and he doesn't speak English, but he makes the craziest of things. And at the end of every episode, after like cooking, uh, you know, a giraffe or just something crazy, that sounded sad. I, I, I was sorry, that was gloomy. It's, it's more like beef and stuff. But anyway, uh, it, at the end of every episode, he goes, super, <laughs> you know, and we, we always wait for it. Go, super. So in our house, we go, super. And now you're learning some Latin. Super means to be above. Annus means to be a chief or a ruler. To speak of the sovereign is to speak of the chief ruler, the one who's in control of all things, the, the super Annus. To speak of God as the sovereign is to say that he is in control of all things. Nothing can thwart his plans or his purposes, nor overthrow his power. You never want to say, guess which hand with God. That's just, you're never going to win that situation. You're going to say, I'm thinking of a number from one to, oh man, you already got it. Yeah, he already got it. He knows all things. He's the sovereign. Now for many people, a God of such power and plans doesn't lead them into praise, but it leads them into despair. Because many people don't want a God who is super honest. They want a God who they can manipulate. They want a God who they can manipulate. They want formulas. This, this is why prosperity gospel and different things are so popular in a consumerist culture like North America. We want a God who we can manipulate. That if I do X, then I can get him to do Y. If I have enough, enough X, 
then I can manipulate him, and he's, he's responding to me, but then he's not the sovereign. We want gods that we can manipulate. We, 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 we make a figment of our own imagination gods who are, who are uh, you know, you look at the Greco-Roman gods, for example. They strangely look like us. They're able to be manipulated, they're deceptive, they're changing, and so on and so forth. Because when we make gods, we make them in our image. But it's the other way around. The Bible tells us that God made us in His image. We need to stop trying to repay the favor. There's a God who is, and there's a God men want, and the two are not the same. The God who is 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 sovereign. He controls everything. He knows everything. For Paul, this, this isn't a reason to despair. This isn't a reason to say, oh, I, but I really want a God. I can, you know, like a, like a you know, put on my keychain kind of a God. You know, Jesus, take the wheel kind of a God. No, no, no. This causes him to just bow down and go, whoa. I don't need you to take the wheel. You were driving the thing the whole time. And you don't need a backseat driver trying to tell you how to drive. You're in control of this thing. Look at verse 3. Blessed be God, he says. Now, in, in Hebrew culture, what we see here in these four words, blessed be God, in Hebrew culture, this is referred to as the berachach. The berachach is, uh, is a blessing. It's, it's an acknowledgement of, of, of God. You give berachach to acknowledge you know, who he is, the God who is. And for the Greeks, writing in the New Testament, as, as Paul, a Jewish man, understands beracha, he uses the word ulogetos, which is where we get translated over into English as blessed. When ancient Hebrews translated their Bible into Greek, they used that ulogetos term to respond to, 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 to God in, in praise in various places. I'll put Exodus 18 in front of you. Here you see the father-in-law of Moses crying out, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians and the Pharaoh, who rescued the people from the hands of the Egyptians. And I know that the Lord is greater than all the other gods. The figment of your own imagination, God said you can manipulate. Oh, he's far above all this. Berachah, ulogetos, blessed be. Reflecting on God's saving work, the psalmist erupts using the same word. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, the, and, and exalted be the God of my salvation. Similar to these men, the Apostle Paul reflects on God's sovereign, uh, providential, saving graces, and control, and, and power, and he cannot contain himself without busting out Barakah. Paul speaks of God's blessings, note, in the heavenly realms. It is important to note here that the Apostle thinks of heaven not just as a place that you go when you die, which is the dominant view of many people I find in the church today, incidentally. They just say, oh, heaven, that's where you go when you die. Oh, no, 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 heaven's now. There, heaven, the heavenly places overlap with the earthly places. There's a spiritual realm that overlaps with the earthly realm. This is very significant for the Ephesians because Ephesus was a city that was known for the occult and pagan powers that led many to have constant fear of, of heavenly powers and, and gods and, you know, uh, all, you know, all sorts of, all sorts of, you know, sort of, well, oh, what about this? What about that? And they believed in that culture in Ephesus that the gods controlled your fate. And so you got to keep those gods happy. You got to pinch a little incense. You got to sacrifice a little something, something. You got to go down to the temple of Artemis and do. Do some things down there. You've got to keep those gods happy because they control your fate. Paul flips the script and says, no, no, they don't control anything. God's in control. 
Look how meticulous he, he says, God has predestined everything. That's, that's the language of the text. He's, he's predestined it. This is what Paul says in Romans. Let me put this in front of you. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. We know that those who love God, all things work together for the good to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. In other words, nothing slips out of his hand. He's God. He's been driving the car the whole time. And he doesn't get in accidents. He doesn't get cut off. He's definitely not raging on the freeway or whatever, you know, uh, but he could, he could if he wanted to. I mean, he is God, but he's in control. Later in Romans, let me put this in front of you, Romans 9, 16. It depends not on the human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is good news. If my salvation depended on me, I would have messed it up a hundred different ways already. I, I would not be a pastor and I would not be a Christian if it depended on me. You know how many things in my life I have messed up? You know how many things in life I have started that I haven't finished? You know how many different karate belts I have? <laughs> you know how many languages I, I studied and never got down? I got a couple down, but there's a few that have evaded me. There's a, all sorts of things that I get going that I don't finish. If it's left to me, that's a hopeless situation. He says, it doesn't depend on you, buddy. It's all on him. And again, some people will go, oh, I don't, I don't want a God like that. And goes, okay, that's fine. You don't want a God like that, but that, that, that's fine. Wanting and what is are often not the same. You know, about every time I step on the scale these days, I don't want to see those numbers. I, and I can't keep blaming it on COVID because COVID's been gone for a while. What you want and what is are often not the same thing. And so here we see it depends not on human will. It depends not on exertion, but on God. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he describes it this way in his own experience. Look at this. As Paul's talking about how God grabbed a hold of his life, what does he say? But when God, who has set me apart from my mother's womb, he called me from his grace, who's pleased. When, so when did God save you? Oh, it happened well before you. He had purchased this with his own blood, which is why we go into the world, which is why we, 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 we share this news. Uh, oh, but people aren't going to like it. Oh, they're going to think whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. God's the one who's driving the car. Paul sees salvation is God's work, God's plan. God's plan, God's plan. He predestined it. The Greek word used here in Ephesians and in Romans, these cross-references I'm showing you, the word for predestined is the word porizo. Porizo, sounds like a delicious pretzel, right? Porizo means to choose or to decide beforehand, porizo. The word perizo appears six times in the New Testament, and every time that perizo is used, it always means the same thing. That there's a God in the heavenly realms who is ordained to do things in the earthly realms, and he's making it happen by golly. Look at all six instances. They're right there in front of you. I'm not going to take time to read them. Acts 4.28. We've already seen Romans 8.29 and 8.30. 1 Corinthians 2.7. We've already seen Ephesians 1.5. Ephesians 1.11, that's in front of you in your Bible, and 1 Corinthians 2.7. He's, he's, he's in charge. He's balling out of control. We're talking about God here, okay? He has no limit. It's, 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 it's amazing. So Paul, 
he, he's thinking about, he's in jail, remember, right? And that's a point where you go, are you there, God? <laughs> you know, if ever there's a point to be like, are you, are you really there, God? Or He's in jail, and he's like busting out this barricade about how awesome God is. You're the Savior, you save. And you know what? What Paul is saying is consistent with what Jesus taught and what Jesus' disciples understood, and that shows you that his mission to make disciples was accomplished, and it is being accomplished. Look at what Jesus said in John 15, 16. Hey, you guys, uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that you, your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he's going to give it to you. Don't get it twisted. I chose you. I chose you. That's why you're here. And that's what he taught them and that's what they passed on. And that's what we see happening. In the book of Acts, Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Say, I believed the gospel. Yeah, you did. But that belief, that was the gift. That is the gift of God that he gives to you. You're not the one who's mustering this. You're not the one who's making yourself believe. I'm, I'm just going to make myself believe in this Jesus guy. No, that, that's, that's part of the work that he's doing. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved of the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in truth. Salvation comes through faith. Faith comes through God by the Holy Spirit who regenerates us and blesses us with that. That work of the Spirit blessing us in that way comes through God's people going into the world and sharing this message that we call the gospel. Look at how the Apostle Paul ties salvation to the sharing of God's word in 1 Thessalonians. I'll put it in front of you. We give thanks to God for all of you, knowing, beloved brethren, by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. The people were changed. And how were they changed? Because the preacher gave them five steps to be a better you. Because the preacher taught them how to claim the promises and if they did it just right, then they could manipulate God to do it for them? No, they were changed by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 1, you're still open to it? Look at verse 13. In him, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Barakah. When did it happen? After you listened to the message. He activated it. When was the choice made? Before the foundation of the world. How, how, how was it activated again? By the Word. Who activated the Word? The Spirit. Why did the Spirit do that? Because before the foundation of the world, God had ordained for that to happen. He's driving the car. Better I go and I send another. As Jesus said, the Spirit is on the move in creation, grabbing and claiming those who have been redeemed by His blood. This moves from the sovereign into the situation. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Paul reminds them why we needed God to do this. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. 
You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Speaking about the devil. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We are by nature children of wrath. We call this the doctrine of original sin. You're, bo you're born sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're, bo we're born this way. Now, this flies in the face of our culture because people like to think that everyone's basically good. You know, I'm, I'm, everyone's good. You go, oh, okay, that's fine. You, you're free to think that. You're free to think that. But live in the world a little longer. A matter of fact, volunteer in our kids' church. Uh, you'll see. They're, they're born, uh, they're, they're vipers in diapers. They're, they're horrible little creatures. And we're all that way. You, you, you put two babies in a crib and give them a ball. Uh, oh, you go first. Oh, no, you go first. You, know, you have a turn. Oh, no, you have a turn. No, they're going to start kicking and screaming and mine, no, mine, no. I got seven kids. That, those were their first words. Mine, no. You would think it'd be like daddy or something. No, it's mine, no. So the situation is we're born this way. So we need God to do something because we're born this way. This is our teaching of new birth, new life. You must be born again. You need God to give you something new in, inside of you, to clean you, to take away that guilt and that regret and, and that rebellion and replace it. Your heart of stone and flesh with a heart that comes by the Spirit. And praise be to God that that's exactly what He has done. Look at verse 4 where we left off. But God... Oh, I love those two words. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us who are in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God that no one may boast. What must I do to be saved? You must ask God to forgive you of your sins. You must ask the God who is, not the God that you want, incidentally. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I'm sorry, I've sinned against you. I've heard this good news that, Father, you sent the Son to die for me. Is that right? And he, he died in my place. He paid a debt that I owed. I owed a debt that I couldn't pay. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Receive that gift. Receive that redemption. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. No degree of reformation, however great. No attainments in morality or spirituality, however high. No culture, however attractive. No baptism or ordinance or ritual, however administered, can help a sinner get one step closer to heaven. We're alienated from Him. But, but God... He came and rescued us. He came to seek and save that which was lost. Look at the text of chapter 3. We're surveying Ephesians. We're showing the outworking of the Great Commission. We're getting up to baptism. For this reason, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was a mystery that I wrote about by referring to this when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, 
which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, but has now been revealed to through his holy apostles and the prophets, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, so here, here we're, we're talking about the sovereign. We're talking about the situation. The situation is we were alienated. The situation is the Gentiles were outside the promises of the God of Israel. The situation is he has remedied that, and now he has brought them in, and he's made them one with him, so that we can call our father, father. says he's adopted us. Oh, that's awesome. And he's not only made us one with him, but he's made us one with his people. And this is where baptism comes in, because the Jews and the Gentiles were all undergoing the rite of baptism. There's a great equalizer. There's, there's, no, there's, there's no segregation in the body of Christ. There's, there's no better than, lesser than. We're all sinners leveled at the cross. And we all go through those waters because there's no one more special or more holy or more what. We're all saying, I need to be washed. I need to be washed. Ephesians chapter 4, look at what he says with regard to who the subjects are of baptism. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit. You were called in one hope of calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Who are the subjects, this point on your outline, the Jews and the Gentiles? Well, what kind of Jews and Gentiles? Those who believe. You, you don't get baptized if you don't believe. This is not a religion of ritual. This is a religion of relationship. We're not here to go through the motions. Um, um, now's the time where I close my eyes and I bow down. Now's the time where I sing. Now's the time. If you're just going through the motions, it, 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 it's nothing. Baptism means absolutely nothing if you're just going through the motions. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. So for those who had experienced that inward reality, they had repented of their sin and come to Jesus, then you go through, you go through that. It, any more than, get this, any more than if you go to the mall and you buy yourself a ring and you put it on, that doesn't make you married. It makes you, I don't know, a creepy single person or something. I don't know. Or maybe you're fighting off the other creeps. Uh, you know, uh, hey, I'm smoking for it, you know. But if you, if you just put a ring on yourself, I mean, Beyonce could have done that a long time ago. She didn't need the song about putting a ring on it. Just go to the store and get you one. You got a lot of money. Just put a ring on it yourself. No, no, that doesn't mean anything. Why? Because the ring is a symbol, right? It's a symbol of something else. The ring symbolizes that I am spoken for, that I, I, I belong to Erica and Erica belongs to me. So to baptism is like a ring. It's a symbol that we belong to him. So the, the subjects are those who have repented. The subjects are those who have faith in Christ. In Acts chapter 8, when Philip preached the gospel, and, and he preached his heart out, and he shared the gospel with the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian said, can I, can I get baptized? It's, it's right here for you to see. He said, can I get baptized? What did Philip say in verse 37? If you believe with all your heart, you may. Who are the subjects of baptism? Those who were believers. And hence the title of my sermon this morning. It's, it's really creative, right? Baptized believers. That, that believers are supposed to be baptized. Baptized believers. You believe, then put a ring on it. If you believe, you put a ring on it. If you've been dating that long, you should put a ring on it. You know, why are you afraid to go public with it? Something's not right with the relationship. If you believe in him, you 
are baptized. You go through the ritual. Now, in the history of the church, if you're taking the church history class on Wednesday nights, it's, it's great. You survey through this and you see that in the history of the church, originally the church was predominantly Jewish. And in Jewish culture, they had the mikvah oat that I was talking about. And so they're a culture of ceremonial washing and whatever. And they know that in the history of the church, as the church spread out, a lot of the Jewish core was lost. And so this dominant symbol that was understood in the Jewish culture kind of loses its meaning in ways. And then you see developing the practice of uh, baptizing babies. Uh, now that said, I'm not, I'm, not here to, uh, if, I'm not here to offend anyone if you dunked your babies or you yourself were dunked by your parents or something like that. I'm, I'm not here to, to, to pick on that. Well, I am going to pick on it, but I'm not trying to be personal about it. Uh, but if I offend you this morning, I hope it's just with you know, my claim that Jesus is the only way to God. Be offended by that. That's fine. But I'm not, I'm not picking on this, but I'm called to teach people the Bible, and this is important. Uh, if you've been baptized as a baby, that, we would say that's sort of like an arranged marriage. Uh, you, you didn't put the ring on it. Someone else did. And you're like, really, Dad? i got to marry her. Yeah, her dad gave me a goat. You're, we're locked in. You know? <laughs> that's an arranged marriage. Uh, you, that's not a real baptism because in Scripture, to be baptized means you believe. And babies don't, babies don't believe. Again, if you don't believe that, we've got volunteer positions in the nursery. You look at those little bobbleheads. Do you believe in Jesus? You know, they they sound like a goat. Anyway, so Jesus has a lot to say in Scripture, incidentally, about being like children and the kingdom belonging to children. It's it's never tied to baptism. Salvation has always been through through faith. In the history of the church, you, you, you see pockets of people who tried to call the church back to this practice and say, what, what is this superstition of baptizing your babies? That, that's nowhere to be found in the Bible. Uh, for sake of time, we can't survey all of it, uh, although in my notes I thought I could, but we're running out of time, so speeding ahead here. Uh, you get up to the Reformation and you find these groups that are calling this out and, the, and they're challenging this practice of baptizing babies in the 1500s. Uh, it took a while for the Reformation to challenge this, and it was not without great bloodshed. Much like slavery and Jim Crow in our culture, to turn the tide, people had to fight and suffer and die. And, uh, and in this history, people fought and, and suffered to say, we've got to go back to the Bible. We, we should only be ba- baptizing believers. Now, at, at this specific era in history, and I'm thinking specifically in Europe, where the practice really blossomed, and in Rome, uh, part of the problem was it got political. Aren't we glad that our religion isn't political anymore? You know, how's that going? So part of the problem is that it was political because the church and the state were one. So uh, you think of how the government issues our, uh, our birth certificates. Well, in those days, your baptism certificate was your birth certificate, and the church and the state were the same. So that's how they kept account of their citizens. So if you're not baptizing your babies, then how do we know you're a citizen? How do we know that you have rights of a citizen? How do we know who are immigrants and who are citizens? You want to go back to this Bible practice of only baptizing believers, then how how do we know who's a citizen and not? And so politics gets mingled into this. You go, but it's nowhere in the Bible. Now, some will push back and say, but, you know, uh, 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 but, but aren't there examples in the Bible where households are baptized? So, for example, let me put this in front of you, 1 Corinthians 1.16. We have a reference to the household of Stephanus being baptized. But there's no mention of children in the household. So, sorry, that doesn't work. The text just doesn't say it. That's an argument from silence. 
1 Corinthians says nothing about babies in households, let alone babies being baptized. Well, how about the book of Acts? Well, there's a couple of uh, examples, a handful of accounts in the book of Acts where households get baptized. Acts chapter 10, we see an example of this in Cornelius' house. And we read in this account, you have it in front of you, so, so look at it, right? It says, uh, they believe the message and then they get baptized. It's in that order. You believe it and then you get baptized. You fall in love, you put a ring on it. That, that, it's in that order, right? Hopefully you don't put a ring on it and then later love each other. You might have a rough, uh, come to the marriage counselor, but you fall in love, you put a ring on it, you believe in the Lord, you're in love with him, you, you, you get baptized. You surrender your life to him. There's no talk in Acts chapter 10 of any baby baptism. Well, what about Acts 17, Pastor Matt? I'm glad you brought it up. I'll put it in front of you for a quick reference. There's a woman named Lydia, right? She's a worshiper of God, the text says. The Lord, look at how the text describes it. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, right? Saying, come to my house and stay. And Paul's preaching Bible study. They believe and then they're baptized. Um, uh, later in the chapter, Paul and Silas, they're in jail, getting the, 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 the poo kicked out of them for preaching the gospel. They're in jail and God delivers them, long story short. And there's a jailer there and they start preaching the gospel to him in Acts 16. They say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household, right? What must I do to be saved? Believe in him. You don't have to get baptized to be saved, but if you are saved, you should get baptized in response to what he has done. And so we see in the text that he brings them back to the crib. They start preaching the gospel. Other people start getting saved and it describes the whole household coming to him. A final quick one in Acts chapter 18, we see Crispus's house getting saved. They believed in the Lord Jesus, he and his household. And they heard and they were believing and being baptized. Belief is always spoken of first. Why do I labor on this point? Well, we're a Bible church and we teach the Bible and we're not apologizing for it. We live in a culture where that's going to make us oddballs. Oh, you Bible people, whatever. Okay, that's fine. You can make up your own religion. I'm going to stick with one that uh, has been around for thousands of years that, that God gave to us. And we just stand on it. We're the Bible church. We read the Bible. Is it in the Bible? All right, cool. I'm going to roll with that. I'm, I'm not trying to make up my own religion. I want to go with what was handed down to us. Because Jesus said, make disciples. Teach them everything that I've taught you. Pass it down so we go with what was passed down to us. And I labor this because a lot of people when they come to church or other spiritual centers that they go to, you know what they do? They check their brains at the door. And they walk in and they, hey, that's what he said. That's what I'm going to believe. I, we don't check our brains at the door at Delray Church. We put our thinking caps on when we come in. And you're going to open the word and I'm going to show you and I'm going to say, hey, here's, wh here's what comes from the traditions of men and here's what comes from the teachings of the Messiah. Okay, and we're going we're to land on what the word says. Many preachers are, are condescendingly treat people in the church like like they're little infants, like they can't understand this stuff. We've got to give them a little 20-minute, 30-minute sermon. That's all they can take, those goofy little <laughs> church people. No, no, we're going to teach. You're adults. We're going to teach you this. We're going to labor because we want you to understand. I don't want anyone. We're having baptisms today. I don't want anyone who gets baptized to go, you know, I didn't know what I was doing when I did it. Or, or you know, you say the prayer, Jesus, I'm a sinner, forgive me. Right? And we have so many people who walk away from faith in Christ. So many people who walk away from God in church. You know why? Because they didn't know what they were doing when they said it. They, they were saying stuff they didn't understand. They were going through the motions. And we don't want to play those games. I'm not trying to have that. And so that's the scandal, the next point on your outline, in our age. 
The scandal is that, thinking about baby baptism, you've got all these people who are baptized as babies who today aren't believers. You've got millions of people who have been baptized and they don't believe. That's a great scandal. And then on the other hand, here's another scandal. You've got churches filled with people who believe and they haven't been baptized yet. And that's a scandal. Because the Lord commanded you to do it. He who loves me obeys me, the Lord said. I, I, you know, when my wife asked me to do something, I love her. I, I'm, I'm going to do. And, and, and I might ask her to do something. She loves me. When you love someone, you, you, you do what, what they're asking of you, right? So the scandal is you've got a whole bunch of people, they, you know, they got dunked when they're, or sprinkled. That's where the tradition comes. And they don't believe any of this stuff. And then you've got people who believe all this stuff and they love the Lord. But for whatever reason, they're postponing getting into the waters. You know, the real scandal, though, isn't, isn't just this. The scandal is Jesus. I, I shared with you in the beginning Jesus was baptized, and I said I would share with you more later about that. If baptism is a sign admitting you're dirty and sinful, then what on earth is Jesus doing in those waters? Because isn't he God in the flesh? Isn't he holy and pure? What on earth is he doing? Mark chapter 1, look at this. John said what? After me, one is coming who is mightier than I. I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his harachis. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus of Nazareth came from Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Why is he getting baptized? I thought he was the innocent sacrifice and we were the sinners. What is he doing in those waters? He's doing something different, y'all. He's doing something different. He's not acknowledging that he is a sinner. He has come into those waters to stand in solidarity with sinners. He has come into the dirty waters of the Jordan, where all those filthy sinners are washing, to put their dirt on his skin. And this is why, verse 10, when he gets baptized, something happens that hasn't happened for anyone else in human history. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending on him. A voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The heavens open when he, get, when he gets baptized. Because you know what he's doing? He's breaking open the heavenly gates to save us. The holy and clean and pure one comes and gets in our muddy waters. Which is why in Matthew's account of the scene, when, when Jesus gets in the waters, look at what John says. John goes, hold up. Wait, <laughs> wait, Jesus. Uh... I have need to be baptized by you. And you come to me. And what does Jesus say? Look at the text, 315. Jesus answering and said, Permit it at this time, for in this way, it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. You see, on the cross of Calvary, when he bleeds out and dies, he's not only taking our sin, but he's also giving us his righteousness. And that's the big so what on all of this. The final point is that baptism is picturing not only the transaction of him washing us and taking our sin, but him giving us what we did not have, a righteousness that is not our own. Now, Paul, as he continues, and for sake of time, uh, we won't go there, but if you have Ephesians still open, notice that in Ephesians chapter 4, as he's continuing, he's talking about the unity of the faith. This one baptism that's been given to us he sees this as a gift in the church and, and other things, such as apostles, prophets, evangelists, teaching, the building up and equipping of the saints for the unity of the faith, he describes, for this great commission that we have been given. So today we very clearly have seen what the Bible says on baptism. 
We've also addressed some of the confusion, the traditions of men that can creep into things. Uh, we live in an age with non-believers who've been baptized because of the traditions of men, and we have believers who have not been baptized because, you know, for whatever reason, our pride can get in the way, our ignorance can get in the way, our indifference can get in the way, our apathy can get in the way. And they say, is it ignorance or apathy that is the problem with God's people today? I don't know and I don't care, is the, is the joke. Uh, you guys didn't get it. Anyway, think about it later. Ignorance or apathy? I don't know. Ignorance? I don't care. Apathy? Anyway, Paul, speaking of knowing, in, in Romans 6.3, he says, Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? When you're baptized in water, you're picturing literally being immersed in Christ. You're, you're identifying yourself with him. Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him. You're picturing yourself with him. Baptism isn't the only picture that we got. We got another picture called communion, which we're going to do. We're going to sing together. We're going to have communion. Then we're going to have a baptism. And then we're going to sing a final song to close our service. And we're going to watch three people in our church who, are, who believe. And they say, man, I, I haven't been baptized yet. And I, 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 want, I want to picture this thing, this outward symbol, this inward reality. And so as we watch them get into the waters, we get to be reminded, man, that's what God did for us. He washed us. He washed us. And when he washed us, he got dirty with us. I, I got a new puppy. I don't know why I pulled the trigger on that one, but, uh, and you know, puppies are just, they're nasty. Um, and they pee and poop on themselves. They'll eat their poop. They're just nasty little things. They're cute, too. They're cute. Uh, I got a cute one, too. But uh, just yesterday, you know, we had to throw the dog in the, in the bathtub. And I got my daughter's. And, we're, you know, and it's stinky or whatever, washing it out or whatever. You, you know, my daughter had said before we threw the, the dog in the tub, she, I want to change my shirt. It's dirty. I go, oh, it's going to get more dirty, honey. Just keep it on. After we finish washing the dog, then wash up yourself and then put on a new shirt. Jesus got dirty for us. He who knew no sin became sin. And so again, the message isn't do, 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 don't, don't, don't. The message is done. He's done it all. He paid it all. He washed it all. He's the, he's the bomb. He's done everything. He's sovereign. He's in control. And if you're one of his subjects, you enter the water because you're like, why wouldn't I? It, it's, like, it, it's, it's like graduation. You earn the degree, right? And then you go to the ceremony. And a lot of people, they don't do the ceremony because it's like, ah, whatever, I already gave them all my money, I could care less, or maybe COVID shut down the ceremony. But it's just a piece of paper, right? But the paper symbolizes that bachelor's or that, that master's or whatever. Now, again, in the case of salvation, unlike your diploma or whatever, you didn't earn it. Jesus went to class for you. He took every class, every exam, did all the homework assignments, and he aced everything, and he said, I'll give it to you. Go. And that's pretty awesome. That's, that's amazing, actually. Wow, that's, that's amazing grace. Yeah, it is. How sweet the sound. So let's respond to him. Let's have communion. Let's think about this mission field that he has placed us in in Los Angeles, that we go and we make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. And lo, he is with us always, even to the ends of the age. I'm going to pray. We're going to have communion. We're going to baptize some people, sing a couple songs and be done. But let's pray. Bow your heads and hearts, please. Father, I thank you for your love for us. What a beautiful Sunday it is. Uh, I look out this morning and see faces of people I, I deeply love. 
I see uh, faces of people in this church who serve, who volunteer, who sacrifice, who do so much to make this church what it is. Uh, people in this, in this community, oh, Lord, you've blessed us so much. I think we, we, we take it for granted, the blessings of friendship and community. So many people who are isolated and alone and in despair, who, who don't have what we have, such rich friendships. But Lord, the greatest friendship that has been given to us, O oh Father, is in your Son, that we could be friends with him when we were once his enemies, born children of wrath, and he saw fit to come for us and to save us. So as we come to the communion table, O oh Father, we pray that we would picture your Son rightly in the bread and in the cup, thinking of his body and his blood shed for us, uh, Lord, and, and that he did that willingly for us. Jesus, we thank you for that gift. As we picture you in communion and picture you in baptism, Lord, I pray that you just stir in us a joy, that you lift guilt and shame. Uh, Lord, that any, any pride uh, or, or, or spiritual arrogance that we can bring to the table, Lord, you just massage it right out of us and draw us in repentance here this morning. We've sinned against you and you alone. Father, make us, make us uh, sorry. Give us forgiveness. Give us power to not uh, go back into the deeds of darkness in the flesh and cause us to walk in new life. We've got two songs we want to sing to offer to you. We've got this table we have prepared for you. We've got, we've got a tank full of water. And we're doing all this, Lord, not as ritual, but to picture you, to picture what you have done. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Son, we pray. Amen.